Almighty God, you've poured upon us the new light of your incarnate word. Grant that this light, enkindled in our hearts, may shine forth in our lives through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today, uh, January the 1st, 2023. It's been an odd week, to say the least for us. We had a, a nice Christmas. We went over to Knoxville and uh, helped Suzanne's sister and brother-in-law at their church, First Baptist Knoxville. They were having a, a luncheon for those who uh, didn't have family in town on Christmas Day. And so we went over Christmas Eve and uh, helped prepare and set up and all that kind of stuff. And then on Christmas Day went and uh, and had lunch and, and served lunch for about 45 people. It was a really nice day. I uh, had a good time. Uh, met some people that I had never met before and enjoyed that very much, and uh, including a, a guy that who went to the same high school I did 25 years before I did. So um, I'm old. Well, he's 88. So uh, nice fella. Had a great time talking to him. Uh, really enjoyed it. So, so it was a really a fun uh, day for us and came home and spent a couple of days here almost. <laughs> but um, on so that was on Sunday. So on Monday night, our water went out. Um, we didn't have any water at all that night and, uh, after about seven o'clock and that was true until, uh, Friday. So, uh, we, we came on Tuesday afternoon. I decided that I'd had, an, well, Wednesday afternoon, sorry. I decided I'd had enough of that. So we went back to Knoxville <laughs> and spent three nights there. I came home on Saturday morning, and fortunately by then, the, the water was back on. I'd been in contact with a bunch of friends, and so I knew that our water was back on, and it was kind of reliably back on by then. So anyway, it was, it was a good few days in Knoxville. Suzanne and I uh, took a couple of uh, interesting walks that we had never been on before. There's a green, there are multiple greenways in, in Knoxville, and so we kind of wandered around one of those one day and then went over um, to a place not too far from um, where we lived when we were first married, actually, and hiked around a place called Sharps Ridge and uh, enjoyed that very much. And so enjoyed spending time with uh, her sister and brother-in-law. And, and uh, so it was good. It was good. We got to see some other people, uh, not as many people as I would have liked, but it was, you know, we, we weren't there to see people. We were there to kind of decompress a little bit and, and it worked. So it was good. Um, it was interesting. We had talked about going here, there, and yon, and I actually made reservations in several different places for those same days, and then nothing seemed to work out right. Everything seemed to be, feel a little bit off, wrong, whatever, so I had canceled all those reservations. Well, as it turns out, we ended up staying at her mom's house uh, for a couple of, for three nights, and so it was really nice. It was, it was a good three days, and gave us some time to be together and to pray and to talk and uh, sort of dream and think about the future, so it was good. Really good few days, uh, but a little bit odd, and uh, glad to be back home and glad to have water. Um, I, I wouldn't wish that on anybody, frankly. Uh, it, it's easier to deal with, with an issue of not having power than it is without having water, to be honest with you. Uh, we've had to do both. It, I don't know what the problem is in the city of Asheville. We, have, uh, we experience power outages here at our house relatively frequently, and I don't have any idea why that would be. But the water thing... It's it's a complete failure of leadership. It's a failure of the city to to focus on the right things. They've they've gone after chasing the wind in a, in a million different ways, and have failed at basic things like um, infrastructure. And it, and it's it's something that needs to be fixed. But I have absolutely no um, belief that it will be. 
um, the the city is so it's just so enamored of things that in my mind have nothing to do with the functioning of the city um, and it, it, it's too late to pull it back there's just no way I don't, I don't see any possible way of, of getting it to focus on doing the right things because it can't let go of the things that it wants to do instead but at any rate there's my little complaint about the place I live <laughs> um, but anyway so we we've got here we are a week after Christmas and we're still thinking about the incarnation, and it's always been one of those things. This has always actually been one of my favorite times of the year, largely because of the lessons that we have on a day-to-day basis in the in the daily lectionary. I just that that's what caused me probably to fall in love with the daily lectionary thirty years ago now, and and it meant a lot to me at the time, and and it really changed the way that I see so many things that the daily lectionary has. It has shaped my life in ways that I can't even describe to you. But one of those is is a, a deep appreciation for the Incarnation as a standalone event and how important it was all by itself. We tend to think of it as just one of those places along the way that, oh, okay, so Jesus did this in order that he could be crucified. Well, there's way more to it than that. Um, God actually took on flesh and came among us in order to redeem us, in order to bring his kingdom, to make himself known to his people, in order that he could establish his kingdom here on earth. And their rejection of him um, allows us Gentiles to come in. That's certainly a happy circumstance. But we can't pray your will be done, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven without actually thinking about what would that look like. And we know what it would look like. (laughs) It would look like when Jesus was here and he made all things new as he went forward. Wherever he went, he brought healing and life and hope. And so we, we can see and imagine what will what will the new creation look like and what will we as new creations no longer sinful no longer subject to evil and death what will that look like when when all those forces that tempt us to draw us away from him and to to live lives that are not pleasing to him when what will that look like we can't even honestly can't imagine it we just can't imagine it. We can see some evidence of it. We can see it with the Gerasene demoniac, for instance, who's set free from this legion of demons that beset him and oppress him. And you know what? I think at the end of the day, it, we look better than that. But the reality is, I think what when we see who we will be, then who we are will feel like that. I really believe that, that we will have some in indication of, if we if we have that memory, and that's the thing is, is that I don't even know that we'll have that memory, but, but I believe that honestly, if we see the real humanity, the redeemed and the renewed humanity, then, then what we are today will look to us as that demoniac did prior to Jesus re- releasing him from their oppression. That That's honestly what I believe it'll look like. Um, we just don't look that way today. Uh, you know, having been around a lot of mental illness um, and, and having seen a great deal of depression primarily is what I mean by this, prim- primarily depression and anxiety, but I've been around some people who have also had some deeper issues than that. And, and just the helplessness 
in, in that situation that I don't, I don't have anything that I can bring that will fix that. The only thing that'll fix it is Jesus. It, the, the medications, all that stuff are not going to fix the problem. And that's the thing is, is that, that I can't wait to see the redemption of, of humanity. And, and I, I, I just, I don't, like I said, know whether we'll have any recollection of these days at all. Um, but, but, I, but I long for the redemption of the body and the mind and the soul. And, and so what we need is a redeemer. Well, we have a redeemer, and his name is Jesus and so we've got to deal with and grapple with what is the, what is a redeemer and what is a redeemer's job. And a redeemer's job pretty much is to do for someone else what they can't do for themselves. And, and primarily in, in the line of after someone dies is the way that, that a redeemer works within Judaism. There, there are multiple kinds of redeemers that if you die or if you sell yourself into slavery, that's one of the ones where you can be alive. And if you sell yourself into slavery, then, then there's a kinsman redeemer whose duty it is to come and redeem you out of that slavery, to pay your debts and to release you from that slavery. It's what you know, do I, what do I have to do with my brother? You know, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer God would give is yes, you are. And it's this kinsman redeemer idea. And you see it in, in Boaz in the book of Ruth when he redeems um, Ruth. And, and what he's really redeeming, though, is, is Ruth's husband, Machlon. He is, he is providing a child, that first child that's born, is indeed uh, counted as though it were Machlon's child and therefore receives the inheritance that Machlon would have received, which means that it keeps it in the family. It doesn't do Boaz in, in an economic way. It doesn't benefit Boaz in the short term to do that. He has to go out pocket to provide for this and to redeem this property, but then he he has a child with Ruth, but that child doesn't, quote, belong to him as far as inheritance is concerned. It, it belongs to Machlon, the deceased husband of Ruth. And then the kinsman redeemers also, if someone's been murdered, the, the, the kinsman redeemer has an obligation to go and take the life of the one who did that. And so it's doing for someone else what they can't do for themselves, and frequently it's after someone's death. And, and that's exactly the way Paul describes the work of Jesus, because he will say that we were dead in our sins. We, we, we couldn't do for ourselves, Jesus did for us. So if you have any sense or any idea that you— did something to achieve your salvation or to merit your salvation. I want you to get that out of your head right now because it's wrong. We were dead in our trespasses. There was nothing you could do for yourself. Your sins deserved death, period, end of sentence. You were identified with your sin in the eyes of God, and, and then he transferred those to Jesus, and Jesus became identified with your sins. But, but I want to look at something today when we look at the gospel that, that I don't think I've ever really thought about very much before, and it, and it just breaks my heart to think about it. It, it, it goes back to um, the time of Jesus' birth, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So the beginning, though, we have to look at Isaiah 63, verses 7 to 9. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel, 
that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. This is all about God. And I think one of the things that I grew up with was some sense that I was responsible at some level. There was something good enough in me that God saw that caused him to want to die for me. And then after that, after I received that as true, it was mine to hold on to for dear life. And I could lose it with every single sin that, that I had in my life. And, and I lived under that cloud for a long, long time. Well, that is the most helpless and hopeless theology you can ever have in your life. No, um, Jesus dying on the cross, he held on for me to the bitter end. No matter what was hurled at him while he was on that cross, Jesus held on to my salvation. He didn't just achieve it, he held on to it in order that I can hang on to him. That's all I have to hang on to. I I hold on to Jesus because he held and stayed on the cross when they were mocking him and saying he saved others, now save himself. Come on, if you want us to believe that you're the Son of God, come down from that cross. Prove yourself to us one more time. We haven't believed any of the previous proofs, but, but prove it one more time. No, he stayed there. He remained on that cross until my salvation was complete. It was not a contingent salvation. It was like, well, okay, I did the hard work. Now you hang on to it. No, I hang on to him. I don't hang on to my salvation. There's no sense of accomplishment at the end of the day when I stand before him. It's a sense of, of love and wonder and awe that anybody could love me so much. And that's exactly what Isaiah is saying here. This is all about according to the, all the Lord has granted us, the great goodness, his great goodness to the house of Israel, that he has granted according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And that is one of the greatest ironic statements in the history of uh, the world. Surely they are my people, who, children who will not deal falsely. Again and again and again in the book of Isaiah and every other prophet, what is it that God accuses them of, and that's dealing falsely? Why, why is Jesus crucified? Because his children dealt falsely with God. His children dealt falsely with God. They refused to have him as king. They refused his offer of kingship. So, he became their savior and in all their affliction he was afflicted and we see that again and again and again that god feels and and it's that's a very difficult thing to say theologically um that god has feelings and and it's not it's not something that's accepted within judaism it's not something that's accepted within christian theology either except that that we know that God experiences these things. There's a a righteousness that gets violated, and when that righteousness is violated, then there's a problem. But does God actually love his people? How can we speak of God loving his people? How can we speak of, of his indignation, his anger, his wrath, and all that kind of stuff? How can we speak of those things without also feeling free then to, to say that, that God was afflicted in their affliction? You know, he heard his people's cry, 
Well, that's fine, right? I mean, I can hear the cry of, of an animal that's wounded, maybe, or, or whatever. I can hear the cry. I can hear all kinds of things that I don't respond to, that I don't have any feeling about. But that's not the same as God in these instances. He hears the cries of his people, and he responds on their behalf to deliver them because he loves them. So it's not right, I don't think, to speak of apatheia, which is the, the lack of feeling in God. It's, his feelings are not like human feelings. They're, they're, they're based in reality, and they're based in truth in a way that ours are subject to the vagaries of all kinds of things. As, as uh, Scrooge says in Christmas Carol, you might be a bit of undigested beef, as far as I know. And, and I think that's one of the things that, that we get into trouble with when we ascribe feelings to God in that way is just that, that what, we, what we have to hold at the same time is righteousness and holiness and how those things get violated. But God cares about things like mercy and justice. It's in, impossible to speak of God's steadfast kindness and his steadfast love and his compassion and all those kinds of things without using feeling kind of language. But, but his feelings are not like our feelings. They're, they're based in things like truth. But he, he declared himself to be the, the, um, the king, the God of Israel, and they were his people. And then in that covenant, then, he is bound to do whatever is necessary to protect and preserve those people. And if they keep covenant with him, but he knows from the beginning that they're not, and that's the reason he doesn't ask Abraham to swear in the same way God himself swears in the covenant ceremony in Genesis 17. He only walks between the pieces. Normally what would have been done at that time is you've got these animals that are separated in an alleyway between them. After um, Abraham has killed them, he separated those pieces. And now when you walk between those things, then what it's saying is, be it done to me according to the, what has been done to these animals if I fail to keep this covenant. God essentially puts his hand out and holds Abraham back and say, no, 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 you can't do that. Only I can do it. And that says two things. One is, I know that you as human beings are going to fail. And so I'm not going to hold you to that standard. But the other side of it is, is he's saying, I'm not making this covenant with you, Abraham. I'm making it for all eternity. And you can't walk through those pieces because you're not eternal and I am. So here, that's what we see is, is that, that God has feelings, but they're not like ours in the sense that they're, they're uh, fickle in any shape, form, or fashion. So in all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. How does he redeem them? Well, he redeems them from slavery in Egypt, for one thing. He also redeems them from Babylon whenever they've been taken into exile there. God does for them what they cannot do for themselves. They couldn't release themselves from Egypt. They couldn't conquer the land, which is the, the finale of the Exodus. They couldn't conquer the land themselves. They had to have his spirit to do it. They had to be redeemed out of Babylon. God provided a way to do that through Cyrus of Persia, but they couldn't do it for themselves. They couldn't overcome the, the kingdom of Babylon. They couldn't overcome the kingdom of Persia and get themselves out. No, God had to do that for them. And so he redeemed them and brought them back. And then he gave them Nehemiah and Ezra, but mostly he gave them his spirit to accomplish the work that he had given them to do. And it's the same with us. We have been redeemed from sin and death. 
into life. And we have power to accomplish the mission that he's given us to do, which is to go and tell all the world, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey, making disciples of all men, and teaching them to obey all that he has commanded us. And, lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, in order that you can accomplish that mission. You can't do it without me. It would be impossible. So so that's Isaiah's statement, and, and that's the, the way we need to think about the idea of redemption, that it's something that can't that we couldn't do for ourselves that he did for us. And then we see in the gospel today, we see the birth of Christ. Now, when they had departed, they being the uh, wise men, Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt of all places. You have to flee from the land and go back to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And if you go, um, and I'm just going to point you in this direction, go read Revelation 12, and you'll see this very scene played out. And then if you want to go further with that and you want to see more about that, I would highly recommend you watching Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R. Just look up Michael Heiser, Revelation 12. You'll be amazed. It has so much to do with that, and it's all about constellations in the heavens and why the wise men particularly would have been interested in that and why there's one community in Israel at that time that would also have been interested in that, and that's the Essene community, because they shared the calendar with these wise men from the East. And so I would highly recommend you look that up. Michael Heiser, H-E-I-S-E-R, Revelation 12. You'll be amazed at the teaching. It is wonderful. So he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. And so Math, Luke is, is pointing us in the direction of, wait a minute, this happened for a reason. He's telling us a detail that, that we don't get other places about them going to Egypt, that, that God appeared to Joseph in a dream. Joseph is the head of the family, and God's treating him with great respect in this regard in coming to Joseph and, and giving the word to him as the head of the family and saying, here's what I need you to do. And Joseph, who has already had one dream when the angel came to him and told him not to put Mary away, but to take her as his wife, and he was obedient to God's word through that dream. Here again, the angel appears to him in another dream and tells him this and gives him a warning, and he takes Mary and the child and leaves. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, I think that's a wonderful turn of phrase that Herod the king had been tricked by the wise men. Yes, they were. Why were they wise? Why did they trick him? Because God came to them as well in a dream and told them to go back another way because they had promised to go back to Herod and tell them where the child was. But they were warned in a dream not to do that. So they were, he was tricked by the wise men, but their wisdom was contained in two things. One is they followed the sign that they knew from God's word. The word that they had received, their ancestors had received through Daniel in that previous exile. It's an amazing thing that God prepared the people in Babylon, the wise men in Babylon, by proving first to them, like he had proven to the magicians of Pharaoh that they were they were not all that and a bag of chips. That there was a wiser man than they, 
and that would be Daniel, because Daniel was able to tell the king his dream and the interpretation in a way they were not, and he saved them. He was their redeemer, Daniel was, because he was able to do this, because Herod, Herod, um, not Herod, Nebuchadnezzar was going to put him to death for the failure to do that, and then Daniel stepped up and said, I think I can do that, but, but it's not me. I'm not a wise man. I have a wise God, and he'll tell me this. He trusted God to redeem him from death because it was a certain death. And what happens is God uses Daniel as a redeemer for these Chaldeans, and they are the ancestors of these wise men. And they knew that this Daniel possessed a wisdom they didn't have, and so they had his holy books. And they studied those, and this this sign that they're looking for for the king of the Jews is something they discerned from reading the scriptures that Daniel had used that had made him wise. And so they were wise to believe, wise to act on that belief, and then they were wise to heed the dream that they had been given. And so they didn't go. And so Herod is furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And in that, I see in that Revelation 12 passage the anger and the fury of the dragon and his determination to do everything and his fury at being tricked. So there's this greater trick that goes on. Greater than the, the, the tricking of Herod is the tricking of the dragon, the evil one, who wants to devour and kill the child of the virgin. And so he lashes out in this way. This is not a human thing that's happening here. It, it, it's, it's an evil thing. It's a principalities and powers thing that's going on. Because killing these children is not going to accomplish what Herod wants it to do. And it's a king who is absolutely and completely run amok. He kills some of his own children and his own family, too. Not in this particular instance. But this is a horrible, horrible man who doesn't mind putting people to death. And so these children suffer and die. And their families suffer the loss of these children because of Jesus. And I can't imagine the heartbreak of the father. And that's the reason I believe this is ultimately a demonic enterprise because it's a way of lashing out at God for having lost the opportunity to kill this child before he can grow to become the Messiah and the Redeemer. So it's a lashing out at God, lashing out at the heart of God by destroying those who are are created in his image. And I can imagine that, that when Jesus becomes aware of this, as he grows, that it, that it is just devastating to know these things. So he killed them all according to the time he had ascertained from the wise men in, in the hopes that in killing all the children, he would kill the one child that he really wanted to kill, the one who was to be the king of the Jews because Herod was the king of the Jews. And so it was his jealousy over this, but his belief that those wise men actually knew something. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A weeping was heard in Ramah, which is Bethlehem, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. So these were children of Rachel, the wife of Jacob. And so these are the ones that she cries over. This is where she died, was in Bethlehem. And so she is weeping over her children, the ones who would have come from her line because they were Israelites. They were of the line of Jacob. And so she's weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they're no more. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So God's God, not just up where he was in Bethlehem, but also in Egypt. Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and he took the child and his mother and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there, you know, like father, like son. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. So we've got three different places in here where Joseph has had a dream from God. He recognized it as from God, and he was obedient to the word of God in that dream. And he did exactly what God told him to do. And in that way, the child, Jesus, was protected. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken of the prophets might be fulfilled and that he would be called a Nazarene. So in all three of these things, we see not only Joseph being obedient to the dream, he believed it was from God, he trusted God, he acted on that dream, and in doing so he kept Jesus safe, but it also, what he did was, he did all this, and it fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. So it wasn't just a new word, it was an old word as well. And all that was kept in order that it would bear witness to Jesus being that Redeemer, being that Messiah for whom they were waiting. In the Hebrews passage today, we've got Hebrews 2, 10 to 18. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Who is the founder of the salvation? It's Jesus. He's going to make him perfect through suffering. In other words, the glorification process of Jesus, his life mattered, his suffering mattered, his birth mattered, all of it mattered. He didn't just come and die, he came and lived. And then he suffered and he died. And so the writer of Hebrews says that, that the founder of salvation, Jesus, was made perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified, he's the sanctifier, we are the sanctified, all have one source. We're all created in the image of God. We are all God's children if we have been sanctified. And how are we sanctified? Through the blood of Christ, through his holiness imputed to us. His righteousness is imputed to us. Our sin is imputed to him. We are identified by God as long as we confess Jesus we are identified in the same way as though we were Jesus. <clears throat> that is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And it has to do with identification. We, we know that God is not, as I spoke about earlier, about the God's feelings, right? So, I and the children God has given me, we have been made one with him because he took on flesh, took the initiative, and became like us. And then through the Spirit, we are united with him in body and spirit. But because he took on flesh and became one of us, we are one in him. It's an amazing thought and an amazing reality that we are that? Do we live that way? Do we live with that sense that God is with us all the time because he is within us through the power of the Holy Spirit? That's part of the incarnation was so that our flesh could be the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. He had to become like us. In the same way, Jesus says that, that he will be lifted up as the serpent in the wilderness was lifted up. Well, what was the point of the serpent in the wilderness? What the problem was, they were being attacked by serpents. They were dying. They were, being, they were, they were um, getting sick from this thing. And so Moses is instructed to make a bronze serpent, put it on a stick, and hold it up, and everyone that gazes upon it will be healed. Well, that took some faith because it seems ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous that that would be the cure for this problem. Just look at it. Just look at that and you'll be okay. You know, it's one thing to divert somebody's attention, but to, to believe that I am going to die from these serpent bites unless I look at that serpent on the stick just makes absolutely no sense. But it was the only way to be saved. And so it's the same principle, Jesus says. He's going to be lifted up just as the serpent is lifted up. And how is that? Well, what's the problem with this in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the context of the serpent, bronze serpent? It's, it's serpents, right? What's sin, which brings about serpents, which brings about death. So what's the solution? Is the serpent on the stick. The serpent is like, the, the uh, solution is like the problem. Same with Jesus. The solution, a man dying on a cross is also the problem man mankind and our sin and so those two things are exact replicas of one another in that way and that's what he's what the writer of hebrews is saying since the children share in flesh and blood he he himself partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil because he's the one who brought death into the world according to uh, new testament theology and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I've been a Christian long enough and taken this seriously long enough that I have no fear of death. It's hard for me, actually, to to try and gin that up. I can't do it, mostly because I don't want to. I have no interest in doing so. But the reality is is that, that those who live under the fear of death because they don't know about the resurrection or aren't certain about the resurrection, it would be a horrible slavery to have that fear. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, the ones created in the image of God, therefore, who, who have accepted the covenant. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, does that mean that God didn't actually love us and didn't really care that much about us before that, that he wasn't merciful? No, it doesn't mean that at all. We needed to see it. We have a physical proof of God's love, God's mercy, His grace, and His goodness in the face of His Son, Jesus, whom He sent to redeem us from sin and death. And so in order to make propitiation, He had to become like us, that He might become that pure and spotless Lamb of God. For He Himself, because He Himself has suffered when tempted, He is able to help those who are being tempted. And I might add parenthetically, if we call on him in those times of temptation to help us. That's the critical part. He's done the work of identifying with us. Now, we have the work and the joy, and and the miraculous joy, the amazing reality to identify with him. 
to identify fully with him, with his mission, with his righteousness, to give ourselves to him and to pursue his righteousness in our own lives. That's the process of sanctification. We've already been justified. That's done at the cross. The process of sanctification is the rest of our lives where he took on flesh to become like us. We take on his spirit that we might become like him, but only to the extent that we apply ourselves to that and set it as our life's goal. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.